Well, good morning, everybody. Come on. Good morning, everybody. Let's be hospitable. Good morning. There we are. All right. Uh, my name is Joseph Ray, uh, like Paul said, and i um, really glad to be with you guys here this morning. Um, my wife and I did come up here from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, my wife is from there. I'm from a small town in Mississippi, and everything is north of Mississippi. So I moved north to Birmingham, met my wife. Um, we've been married, uh, it'll be nine years in November, and we do have four children. Uh, our oldest is six right? Six. Yes. Our oldest is six. So uh, we had the first three in three years, and then number four after that uh, sometime that I can't remember. Um, but uh, they are uh, a ton of fun. Our youngest is with us here, and she'll be kind of noising around the room probably in third service. Uh, others are with my parents. But um, we've really enjoyed our time here this weekend, and I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to be here looking at God's Word with you guys. And so we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And so I'm going to read the text, and then I'll pray to open us up. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Your Lord, we have so many things in our lives in general, and particularly now, that seem like they can make us lose focus on you. Um, between just everything going on with the, the coronavirus and our um, political circumstances, the turmoil that we're facing, there are so many fears and so many things that can pull us away from you. And Lord, um, you don't want us to live in this escapist fantasy world away from those things. You intend for us to be salt and light in the world. But you do that by helping us stay focused on who you are and what it means to live in a relationship with you. And so I pray that you would help us see what that means here uh, from this passage in this time. And I pray that you would encourage us to maintain our focus on your gospel and on what it means to live it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was talking parenting with a guy the other day. Um, we have four children, and the oldest is six, and so we have tons of questions about everything. Um, but he was telling me about teaching his kids to do things that are a little bit riskier, like learning to ride a bike or learning to swim. And he said something that struck me. He said something that he'll tell his kids when he's uh, having them face a risk of some sort, is he'll say, don't focus on your fear, focus on your father. Don't focus on your fear, focus on your father. 
And that struck me because he's not uh, denying the existence of their fear. And he's even acknowledging that there might be something that they have to be afraid of. There's a little bit of a risk in what they're about to do. But he's trying to shift their focus to help them on the task at hand because he knows it's something that they're able to do and that they're with him. Paul's letter to the Philippians was written with a similar intent. So when Paul writes, he's writing for prison in another city. So he's either in a jail cell or he's under house arrest, which meant he would have been literally chained to a Roman guard in his house. The Philippians sent a messenger to him that's partly out of concern for him. They want to find out how he's doing, but also partly because they're having some challenges as well. So they're facing some kind of external pressure or persecution, and they're having these internal divisions that are so sharp they're causing fights among prominent members of the congregation. So external pressure, internal division, that sounds nothing like the church in America today, right? So why on earth are we talking about this? Uh, so the Philippians wrote to Paul out of their fears, and Paul writes this letter back. He doesn't deny that he's in jail, it's true. He doesn't deny that they're under pressure, that they have to deal with their disagreement, because they will. He's going to talk to them about how to do that. But he writes this letter to help shift their focus away from their fears and onto the life that they're called to. And he summarizes his vision for that in Philippians 1, verse 27, which we didn't read, but I'll read here right now. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So in essence, he tells them, don't focus on my imprisonment. Uh, don't focus on your persecution. On whatever it is that's dividing you. Focus on living like you and Paul do. And that worthy of the gospel. So you bring honor to our faith. We strive side by side. That word striving is like an athletic competition. I could say to a football team, strive side by side to hold the faith and see it advance into the world. So that's what Paul wants, that they would focus on living and sharing the gospel. Now, I've said the word gospel multiple times already. And so if you're here today and you are a Christian or you don't know what the gospel is, we're really glad you're here because the gospel is the core, the core truth of the Christian faith. And what it is, is that there's this perfect, all-powerful, completely good God who created the world and everything in it, including us, as just this act of gratuitous joy. He created this world, good world to enjoy, created us to enjoy it in a relationship with him. But our first ancestors broke that relationship, wanting to find their lives apart from him. And did this kind of corruption called sin entered the world. So all of us, regardless of race, class or wealth or you know, the, how good or bad we are by any society standards, all of us have that corruption in us to where by default we live for ourselves first. And the self and the self deceit or violence or slander or anything else, they make us guilty under God's sight so that we deserve punishment. Instead of good news, uh, it's like an the first step is admitting you have a problem and you need help. So the, the bad news, but the good news of the good news, well, which is what gospel, gospel means, is that God doesn't leave us in that guilty state. So to forgive someone who's wronged you is to take that cost onto yourself so they don't have to pay it. So if someone steals a thousand bucks from me because I have a background in ministry and I'm just flush with cash all the time, um, that's a joke. Um, if someone steals the money from me, for me to forgive them means to accept the loss of that thousand and 
that they give it back. And so forgiving them means eating that cost. God put the cost of our sin in himself by sending his son to become a being that was both fully divine and fully human. Not half and half, but completely God and completely man. And that son, Jesus, gave up his life as a sacrifice for our sin, paying the sentence that we deserved. And he was raised from the a new creation beyond the reach of death and sin. And when we come to believe that these things are true of Jesus, that he is that person, and we entrust our lives to him as our Lord, then we become joined to that new perfect nature. And given everything that's true of him becomes true of us. So as he is perfectly right in a perfect relationship with the Father, we become the same. As he is adopted, or as he is God's natural son, we become adopted as we become his sons and daughters. And when we become the heirs who will inherit the new creation, God comes back and he remakes the world with no corruption, no sin, suffering, or death. We will stand to enjoy that, not because of anything that we've done, but entirely because of the grace of God on our behalf. And then we respond to that grace. We respond to that truth in a way that shows God's holiness and love in our personal lives, in our relationships, in our work in our culture, see those things spread forward. A little bit more like good news, right? That's the good news of the gospel. And I'll just say that if something you haven't heard before or have a lot of questions about, uh, I would love to talk to you after service. I know Paul or any other leader would as well. So we'd love to come ask us about it after service because we'd love to talk with you more. But this is what Paul wants them to focus on. He wants them to live in a way that honors that gospel and shows the truth of it. And he wants uh, them to be focused on that and moving that forward. And so he gives them three actions from this passage to help them stay focused. And that's what we're going to look at today. So the first action is to remember the goodness of Christ. Paul wants us to remember the goodness of Christ just on the gospel. This is verse 1. Let me read it. So if there's any any love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So Paul uses this if language, not because he doubts that they've experienced these things, but because he knows they have, and he wants to remind them of that. It would be like if someone who knows me said to me, if you love Cajun food, and I would say, I do love Cajun food. I should listen. And so that's what he's saying. He's prompting them to remember something they know. He prompts them to remember the goodness of Christ, and he does it in four different ways. Now, interestingly, Paul doesn't just remind them of facts here. He uses very emotional, experiential language because the goodness of God isn't just something we know outside ourselves. It's something that we've experienced inside ourselves if we're Christians. So he says, any encouragement in Christ, that means being strengthened in our soul to follow Christ, whether that's to let go of a sin and hold on to him or to keep moving in the face of kind of a struggle or difficulty Encouragement in Christ means feeling the drive uh, to do that. Any comfort from love means the experience of finding consolation in the love of God. That's having God's love calm or soothe your heart, or another Christian do the same thing. Any participation in the Spirit. So the Greek word translated participation there is koinonia, which Bible nerds like me will know is often translated fellowship. It's sort of like a famous Christian Greek word. Um, but it's, uh, it means to belong in unity to God and to someone else and to, to experience a deep unity with his spirit and with his people. 
And then any affection and sympathy is an experience of deep, kind of moved love and concern, again, either from us or for us, for someone else. So a, a Christian is someone who has experienced the goodness of Christ. It's not just someone who believes a certain list of things or went through a certain ritual when they were a child or who has certain actions that they do or don't do. A Christian is someone who has come to know the living God through the grace of Jesus Christ, brought into our hearts through the Holy Spirit in a way that changes us. So we experience his love for us and we experience love for him and for others in turn. And it's worth noting here that Paul is intentionally broad in the experiences that he talks about. He doesn't specify whether he's talking about past experiences or present experiences. He doesn't specify whether these came from God in what we'd call a spiritual experience through studying the word or worship or prayer, or whether uh, they come from another person through God or from God through another person. I think Paul is intentionally vague on purpose because we can experience the goodness of Christ in all those ways. We can have past goodness in our life and present goodness. We can have goodness of God from our personal uh, Bible study and prayer and meditation or from worshiping together or from the love of another Christian, just a, a good conversation with somebody. All of those are ways that we can experience the goodness of others, of goodness of Christ. I'm sure that many of you have seen the uh, Facebook video of your pastor, Paul, is it your Paul, not this Paul, um, talking with white and black pastors in the wake of George Floyd's death. Uh, you can tell from the video that the men aren't coming to the event with the same, exactly the same emotions or the same pastoral challenges or the same questions or the same ideas uh, on how to move forward wisely. They have things that they, they don't have in common, and they, they might not have had in common at the end of the conversation either. But um, these kinds of divides right now feel like they're ripping our country apart and our churches too. But you can also tell from the video that those pastors who have been cultivating a friendship, studying God's word, praying together, getting to know each other over years before this, that they have a foundation of unity in their common experience of the goodness of Christ that doesn't erase their differences, but it, it gives them a foundation to discuss those differences and to try to move forward in Christ from those things. So they have experienced encouragement in Christ together. They've experienced participation in the spirit with one another, affection and sympathy for one another. And so in that uh, unity, they can disarm themselves and listen to one another and find out kind of that most horrific of things like maybe I'm wrong about something. You know, worst possible scenario, I could be wrong. Um, but they, they can focus on living out the gospel and sharing the gospel together. And so that's the first action, is to remember the goodness of Christ. The second action, the second way that Paul tells them to stay focused on the gospel is to practice the mind of Christ. This is verses 2 through 8. Paul summarizes the commands of verse 2 through 4. In verse 5, he says, This mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so the verses that come before it, which we'll read and get to in a bit, but he says, I want you, the Philippians, to complete my joy not by bailing me out of jail or organizing a jailbreak for me. He says, I want you to complete my joy by practicing the mind of Christ together. That's what he defines in those verses. And so the first thing that he says shows uh, that someone has the mind of Christ is pursuing unity in the gospel. This is verse 2. He says it in four different ways. Let me read verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord 
and of one mind. He wants the Philippian believers to have a loving unity in the core truths of the faith. We're not supposed to have absolute uniformity on everything. That's in other passages of Scripture. We can see people can come to very different conclusions about lots of different questions and ways to live. Um, That's not what Paul has in view on. But the essential things of the gospel that we described already, Paul says we must be unified in confessing those things together. And if we agree to disagree on secondary matters, if we reach a place where we're, just, we're going in different ways because of our conscience, we have to be clear and make it clear that our unity in Christ is more important than those differences. It transcends those differences. Now, we tend to think that unity is easy. Uh, everyone just agrees with me on the most important things, and we're good, right? So unity solved. Just I'll give you the books to read and the podcasts to listen to, the people to follow, and all taken care of. We'll be unified. Um, no, where the, where the gospel is clear, we also must be clear and unified. But where the gospel leaves room for our consciences to lead us in different directions, having the same mind and the same love means tolerating differences that would divide us just from a purely societal perspective. Now, that includes things like taste in music or preferred Bible translations, which have divided churches before. It also includes opinions on economic policy or political affiliation, a whole host of other things that seem like these, uh, you know, like differences we cannot reconcile to one another over for some reason all of a sudden. We think, how could I possibly be of one mind with someone who votes for that party or thinks that about government spending or that about criminal justice? But the second practice that Paul commends in these verses begins to help us move forward in that unity. Let's read verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So divisions and disagreements, they tend to produce the things that Paul warns about here. Selfish ambition, conceit, self-interested action. Uh, They produce the temptation to strategize so that we can gain or maintain power and we can keep our own authority and, and, you know, our own good. But practicing the mind of Christ means flipping that on its head. It means that instead of thinking about how I can benefit from a situation or a relationship, I'm to think about how my neighbor can benefit. Instead of asking what I can get, it's asking what I can give to another person. Counting others as more significant than myself means thinking, how can I bless this person I'm interacting with right now? How can I make their life richer? This is another way to say what Jesus said was one of the top two commandments that summarized the Old Testament, to love your neighbor as yourself. We have some friends in Birmingham who uh, they had one son, and when he was two, they got pregnant with what they thought was number two and out. One more baby, and they're done. They wanted two. Uh, It turned out that number two was actually numbers two, three, and four. And so they were going from one to four in three years. And we went from one to four in uh, five years, which felt insane. I cannot imagine uh, quadrupling in three years. But there's a single girl in their small group who kind of adopted them as a family. She began coming over to their house, kind of helping them out. She was in college or maybe a recent graduate. And uh, one of the the most tangible ways that I've seen her help is that the the husband of this couple is a pastor in my church. And so he's gone early every Sunday morning. And so this girl would give up her peaceful Sunday morning on her own 
come over to their house and help the mom get the kids ready and get to church on time. So instead of her extra sleep and, you know, all the the peace of uh, being on her own, she kind of steps into the chaos and, you know, buckles and packs and arranges and transports someone else's kids to church. That's not complicated at all. It's really simple, but it's looking out for the interests of another person. It's just a simple way of practicing the mind of Christ. Practicing the mind of Christ means elevating others' good over our own. It means listening to them, being attentive, so we can learn where they're coming from, learn what they need, and then thinking about what we can do to meet it, even if it costs us or makes us uncomfortable. It means loving them as people, regardless of the things that might divide us. And Paul closes this exhortation to practice the mind of Christ with a vivid description of Jesus' own mind. He says how Jesus showed the mind of Christ, which is helpful. So let me read, starting in verse 5, and I'll read 5 through 8. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus begins his life in the form of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means he has existed from eternity past in full glory with the Father. But instead of grasping onto that and holding onto that to his own advantage, he gives that up and he lets go. And he humbles himself to consent to be born as a human being. It says he emptied himself, which we don't know exactly what that means. He continued to be divine, but he became a human being, and he lived uh, on earth. And then he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to death, and even to death on a cross, the most shameful and cursed death that the, the Roman government had engineered at the time. He also died under God's own anger against our sin, again, paying that cost that we had incurred. And so Jesus went from heaven to the wrath of God, giving up, humbling himself, humiliating himself all the way down to pay the penalty for people who didn't love him and who didn't care about him, to pay for our sins and make us right with God. Jesus' humility was our only hope. And that transitions us to the third and last action that Paul recommends to help us focus on living and advancing the gospel Paul wants us to hope in the glory of Christ. To hope in the glory of Christ. So let's read verses 9 through 11 together. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So after Jesus went all the way down from heaven to earth to the wrath of God in his humiliation, it says God the Father raised him from this to what this passage describes as his exaltation. So Jesus is recreated in a physical body that's beyond the reach of sin or suffering or death anymore. The Bible calls him the first fruit of a new creation, which we might call like the proof of concept of a new creation. Uh, He shows that there is a different kind of world that can and will be made. And God exalts him, bringing him all the way up to the throne room of the universe and giving him the name above every name. 
That means that the authority, the title above every other, because God, literally, he made the universe, he owns the universe, he grants Jesus that title, that authority. And because of that, Paul says that at Jesus' name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, which is all beings, all people, now living, now dead, wherever we are, we're going to be raised and we're going to bow and we're going to confess that Jesus is Lord. So what Paul is describing here is there's going to be a moment in history where God says, it's over, it's done. And he's going to rejoin heaven and earth, which have been separated. And every being is going to be raised to life and going to see Jesus as God's king and is going to bow and confess that he is that king. And it doesn't matter what you thought about him in this life. It doesn't matter who you were, how important you were, what you had. You are going to bow and confess just like everyone else. And the people who didn't belong to Jesus in this life, the people who were more consumed with self-love than uh, trusted in him, to those people, Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And those people are going to spend eternity apart from him under the uh, penalty for sin that he could have covered for them and would have covered for them. But to the people who did trust in him, Again, not the self-righteous people or the people who grew up in the right place or who voted the right way, but the people who gave up control of their lives and gave themselves over to him instead of trusting in themselves. To those people, Jesus is going to say, come in to this new creation, a recreated earth that has all the joys of this life, but with no sin or suffering or death. Paul writes in another letter, that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him already in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God is going to take the goodness of Christ that we've experienced in shadow in this life and he's going to multiply it beyond belief and on and on into eternity. So we'll have a joy in our enjoyment of the earth and our relationship with him that unfolds and extends forever. The hoping in the glory of Christ, it puts whatever fears we have or distractions we have in the present into perspective. It doesn't erase them. It doesn't make them go away. But it reminds us that no matter what hardship or loss we might experience here, it will be nothing compared to the joy of eternity. It gives us the humility to listen to others and to give up our own agendas because why would I quibble over a buck if I have a billion-dollar inheritance coming? It doesn't compare And if my king, the king of the universe, followed this pattern of humbling himself all the way down on the way to exaltation, who am I to live differently and to do other than what he did? So whatever happens over the next months, whatever changes or challenges our country and our world face, my prayer for you, and I know that this church's prayer for you as well, is that you could remember the goodness of Christ, you could practice the mind of Christ, and you could hope in the glory of Christ and stay focused on living and advancing his gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are king over all things. You are the rightful king of this universe, and you earned that right through your obedience. And so one day we are going to see you face to face, and we are, I hope, going to be overjoyed to see you, and we are going to worship you. Um, Not because we are good at all, but because we are sinners in need of grace, and you have graciously given us that. 
And so I pray that you would help uh, each of us here um, find ways to stay focused on living in a manner worthy of the gospel and in striving to see it go forward. And I pray that we could see uh, that hope in you one day made sight. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.